0: Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS member podcast where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the DNS podcast. Our guest today is well-known critical care perioperative and nutrition physician, Dr. Paul Wishmeyer, here to talk with us about his own professional journey and how he is helping patients prepare for and recover from surgery, as well as overcome critical illness. Dr. Wishmeyer is a board-certified anesthesiologist and professor with tenure at Duke University School of Medicine currently serving as Associate Vice Chair for Clinical Research in the Department of Anesthesiology and Director of the Nutrition Team at Duke Hospital. His research interests include surgical and critical care nutrition and exercise rehabilitation therapy, parenteral nutrition and personalized nutrition trials, perioperative optimization, post-illness muscle mass and functional recovery, and the role of probiotics and the microbiome in illness specifically COVID-19 prevention and treatment. Dr. Wishmeyer has received significant funding from the National Institutes of Health and the U.S. Department of Defense, as well as numerous other awards for his work from national and international societies, including the Jeffrey Silverstein Award and Memorial Lecture for Humanism in Medicine from the American Delirium Society. Fellow of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the John M. Kinney Award for the Most Significant Contribution to the Field of General Nutrition, and the Stanley Dudrick Research Scholar Award provided by the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, where he is also recognized as an honorary fellow. Dr. Wishmeyer has over 200 publications in nutrition, critical care, and perioperative care, including publications in the New England Journal of Medicine. He has been an invited speaker at numerous national and international medical meetings, delivering over 1,000 invited presentations in his career, and is an advocate and lecturer for improving the patient experience and teaching providers to keep care as the focus of healthcare. Dr. Wishmeyer, thank you so much for joining us today on the DNS podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So what first sparked your interest in perioperative and critical care nutrition?
1: So I would have to say my interest really started when I was young, when I was 15, um, I was di- diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, and and honestly had never considered medicine or nutrition, or, or I'd never even seen the inside of a hospital at that point in my life, um, um, and was more concerned with playing basketball and imagined I would be a soccer goalie someday in the Olympics. Um, probably good it didn't work out that way, but. Uh, and then suddenly, um, over Christmas break in my freshman year of high school, um, I got strep throat and took erythromycin, took an antibiotic for it. And, you know, erythromycin caused some GI upset, and I got that. And then that continued, and I started to bleed. Um, every time I'd go to the bathroom, there was more and more blood. And 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 so my mom, not knowing what was going on, took me to the doctor who, who said, you know, we're going to do this procedure to call a colonoscopy, which I didn't know what that was. And and I realized quickly that doctors really weren't very nice people. And um, they did do pretty awful procedures too. This is long before we be sedated for these things. Um, and suddenly he came shortly after the procedure and said, Well, you need to be admitted to the hospital. You're not going to eat anything for six weeks. <laughs> and I said, That's not true. I have a basketball game next week and I'm really hungry right now. And he said, No, no, we're going to feed you through an IV. And so that was my first experience with parental nutrition. Um, was, was at age 15, and I was in the hospital for the better part of that year uh, and was on TPN for the better part of that year. Um, a number of months in, my colon perforated, um, and I got septic, ended up in the ICU having an emergent colectomy. They took my colon out. Um, and then I was the first child in Chicago, the first male child, at least to have an ileal pouch, the J-pouch surgery they do for a lot of people with IBD. Unfortunately, it didn't work out so well. Um, it was a tough surgery back then, and, and it was new. And so mine failed while I was in college and I had pouchitis often, which is an inflammatory condition of the pouch. And so I sent a proposal to study short chain fatty acids or nutrients because um, I was uh, realized that I, I wanted to go into medicine. And, and I think two things I realized honestly that took me towards nutrition was one was, um, again, I wasn't sure doctors were the nicest of people and someone should teach them how to take better care of people. But second, I I wanted to study things or I wanted to go into research and study things that that were treatments that didn't make you sicker than the illness you had. And I was on steroids and prednisone and they never made my disease better, but they sure had a lot of side effects and they made me kind of crazy. Um, And so I said, I I really would like to study something that that didn't have so many side effects that maybe was a more natural way to help people recover. And so I ended up studying my own GI illness with the gastroenterologist who cared for me at University of Chicago. And then sent a proposal to study GI nutrients, short-chain fatty acids, in pouchitis to the Mayo Clinic, who had done the most of these kinds of procedures at that time. And forgot I'd even sent it, probably I sent it in March of my my sophomore year of college. And then in June, the head of GI at the Mayo Clinic asked if I wanted to come up and do research with them. Um, which was one of the most exciting days of my life. Um, and uh, so the next week I was up there and 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 beginning to study it and ultimately did a small clinical trial of glutamine and short chain fatty acids for severe potitis that worked. That was the first publication I ever had um while I was in college, and I was hooked. Um, and and I think nutrition became a path that sort of naturally progressed because of my research, and then ultimately. I think um, I was an athlete growing up and and a personal trainer in medical school, and I quickly realized the professional athletes that I worked with and trained, their lives revolved around nutrition. And so um, I think I learned more nutrition and and exercise physiology from the athletes I was around, um, running and and exercising, than I ever did in medical school, which we'll come back to as a big problem. And I think nutrition training, obviously for physicians, especially. So, So my interest started very early and then evolved. And then ultimately, I ended up directing a clinical nutrition team in Colorado when the head of the hospital came to me and said, we need a nutrition director. Do you think you can do that? And I said, well, I'm not really trained to do TPN. I've been on TPN, but but I guess I could learn to do it. I know the literature. I've done research in the area. And so I learned clinical nutrition from the dieticians and the pharmacists on my nutrition team who taught me the real nuts and bolts of how you care for a person in a clinical nutrition setting. And then I was able to back them up when a physician argued with them or didn't believe they knew the literature. And it became a really wonderful relationship because really clearly dietitians have all the knowledge. It's just the physicians don't always respect what they have to say. And so when there was a physician behind them that would back them up, it really empowered them. And it was very satisfying for me to watch how the physician's respect for the dietitian role really grew in the hospital I was in. And so that's how I came to clinical nutrition. It really came through a personal experience.
0: That's awesome. I mean, that's such a great origin story. And to think that you were just a sophomore in college and you've accomplished so much at that point that, you know, others are working towards throughout their whole career. So really amazing.
1: I was, I was blessed. I was lucky to, a lot of good mentors, a lot of good mentors. John Pemberton, who's still a colorectal surgeon at Mayo, Eugene Chang, who's still an IBD researcher of great renown at University of Chicago. these were people that really guided my career and made all this possible.
0: So, you know, you, you've been very public with your medical illnesses and, you know, on social media and otherwise. So how have your various experiences with your personal health transformed how you practice?
1: Uh, I would say immensely. I, I often say to my residents or to my students, when I hear them, sort of making remarks about patients who either aren't doing what they're supposed to or who are challenging patients and I always say to them you, you know I really don't until you've laid in the bed I, I'm not really interested in what you have to say you know it, you know it just it it, it it you can't have an opinion I, I feel like about patients until you've actually been one and and so I think it really fundamentally changed um I think who I was as a person obviously when I was a patient and it fundamentally I think, was the reason I honestly first got interested in medicine and the research came later. I, I just, I really thought when I was young that, that no one would talk to me, right? They were afraid to talk to me. I wasn't an adult, I wasn't a kid, I was this teenager. And the only people I really felt close to honestly were the nurses, the dietitians who wrote my TBN who would talk to me and the medical students who would spend time with me and actually tell me the truth. Um, because many times they didn't tell me how sick I was. They told my parents not to tell me how sick I was, as if I didn't know. Um, you know, when you're getting 40 units of blood over a couple of weeks, you know something's wrong. Um, and, and, I, and I thought, you know, that really wasn't in the best interest of the patient. And I think the other thing I've I, I really noticed and that has become a real passion of mine is I think patients too often get treated like a box to be checked. They're a job to be done. Um, I watch people stick people 10 and 15 times for IVs and for arterial lines or central lines. And, um, you know, when you're laying under the, when you're looking at a patient doing a central line with a blue drape over them, all you see is the blue drape. When you're the patient, you don't see anything other than, that you know, there's a giant needle coming at your neck and you can't see it coming, um, which is terrifying. And so I sedate for procedures that no one else would sedate for. Um, and that's one of the joys of being an anesthesiologist as well. And a critical care physician is, you know, I'll sedate people for A-lines, I'll sedate people for in G2 placements, right? And G2 placements are incredibly traumatic for anyone who's had one. Um, I give people a dazzling if they're really anxious about it Um, because I feel like, you know, that little moment of compassion you can give takes trauma and bad memories away for that stay with people the rest of their lives. Um, One of my favorite sayings is from a patient's point of view, you know, we don't remember their patient probably even the next day after we see them, but I can tell you as a patient, we remember your face and who you are the rest of our lives for good or for bad. And so I, I think it, it fundamentally changes how I teach and it fundamentally changes how I care for people. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little heavier handed by my pain medicine. I think we've got this big swing away from giving people opiates after surgery or after painful things because we're afraid everyone's gonna become addicted to them but the reality is surgery still hurts. And 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 so I, you know, I, I, I think I probably practice differently than I've been told at least my residents tell me that. Um, but I wouldn't change anything because that's how I'd want to be cared for and that's why I always think how would I want to be cared for and I hope my residents think the same thing when they're caring for people.
0: So what do you think makes up or what characteristics do you see with really effective healthcare teams? So thinking of like that multidisciplinary team approach. Um,
1: so I think mutual respect is really important. Um, know, I think I I really learned that from my dietitians. You know, some of the folks that I worked with in my first sort of role at University of Colorado, and even here at Duke for sure, are are some of the most passionate, hardworking people I know. And and, and I think a lot of times they aren't given the respect that they deserve, right? I mean, we know physicians don't have any nutrition training almost entirely. and, And yet we have this member of the team, right, who I think A needs to be empowered to speak up and B needs to be listened to and respected as any member of the team does. So I think that that mutual respect for the roles each person plays is super critical in 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 all of what we do. And then I think the the other the other key thing obviously is good communication and 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 a willingness to speak up and and speak your mind and 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 to be heard. And I think listening you know, we talk about communication, but a lot, most of communication is listening and, and reading body language. And I used to teach a body language um, lecture to my students um, when I was a, a little younger and a little, had a little more time than we have now. Um, but but that's really critical, right? So like um, when I go into a patient's room, I always cross the midline of the room. Um, I always lean down or sit down to get on their eye level. And I think that's true in our team communications as well, right? I think. Our body language and how we interact with other people. Never, I I never stand around with my arms crossed, and I don't let other people do it on rounds much either, especially trainees. And they say, "Well, I'm cold," and I said, "Well, then put a jacket on because that makes you look unapproachable." And you know, in an ICU setting or an ac- acute care setting, you need to be approachable. And and we know that even how you hold your arms or or that 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 sort of posture you take on makes people want to communicate with you or may not want them to be able to communicate with you. And your patients are the same. You know, if I don't stand with one foot inside the door and one foot out of the door because the patient knows you want to leave and they get stressed and they forget their questions. So I always cross the middle line in the room and make sure I try to get on the other side of the bed for them. And I think in our team communications, those kinds of things are really critical too, that people want to be heard. and You need to make sure you know that they're, they know that you're listening. Well,
0: and I think you paint a really nice picture of that effective team being present with the patient and open for that dialogue. I, I think a contrasting image that I've seen in, in ICU rounds is when all of these, you know, team members, except for the physician, are pushing computers. And now you have this drove of computers wheeling around the ICU. Um, I think that would create a barrier, right, based on what you just described.
1: It does. That's a brilliant statement you just made. I I, I posted a picture once that got a lot of shares on social media. It was on Twitter, I think of the wall of computers and ICU rounds now that never existed before. But now when I stand in front of my team, I don't even see their faces anymore because all I see is a wall of computers, especially if I sit down. And sometimes I sit down because I'm tall enough and big enough that I feel like sometimes I'm imposing and people don't communicate as well with me. But if I do that, I can't see any of them. And so it's really hard to do that because you're right, there's this wall of computers. And so I think it's really what I've noticed over 25 years of doing this is we, we aren't interacting with the patients as much we're interacting with computers a lot. Um, And so I think it's so critical um, to go in the rooms. And I often, in a really sick patient or with a family who's really anxious, either have the family come into rounds and have them listen to it all and ask questions, or I'll go in the room and we'll talk about a lot of the patient issues in the room if the patient and the family are comfortable with it, because I think it makes them feel comfortable and safe and it gives them time to think and relax and ask their questions. And so I think, you know, as teams, you know, keeping the patient as the focus, I always say we need to keep the care healthcare. Um, and healthcare. And, and I think keeping the patient in the center of, of that is also critical for team dynamics, right? I think we get caught up in the, the technology and all of the other things, like you said, and it's very easy to only see the patient as sort of this job to be done on the other side of the wall. Um, when there's a person who's terrified and probably is facing the biggest challenge of their life right now. And that's something we have to respect every day.
0: Absolutely. Well, you've mentioned a couple of times about Physician training related to nutrition or the lack of nutrition training. And mm-hmm. I know that's a passion of yours. So, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what you're doing to increase physician competency related to nutrition?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's probably become perhaps the most important mission of my career at this point where I'm at in my, my career, along with, the, of course, the research I do and, and patient care as a focus. But, but I think we know that 75% of medical schools right now teach no clinical nutrition required classes. I mean, that's devastating, right? I mean, how is that possible? Um, And somewhere between 10 and 15% of physicians and residents coming out of training feel any comfort to discuss any nutrition topic with their patients at all. So we're talking about one in 10 physicians that may even mention nutrition ever to their patients. And so that's pretty terrifying. And and so I think clearly we have a huge deficit. Um, And without doubt, the dietitian role has to be emphasized as well. I mean, the dietitian is the tip of the spear and, and is the point person that we need to keep and focused in our mind as the leader of the nutrition piece. But I think physicians have to know enough nutrition to even know what to ask and to know the literature well enough to not be arguing with a dietitian who's known the right thing all along. And so we have done, tried to do a lot of things, but I think the thing that we're really focused on now is i had the opportunity to start a, a clinical nutrition fellowship an online nutrition fellowship at duke we we had some neat graduate school software that we'd used for a perioperative fellowship to train people in perioperative medicine and um a lot of institutions do this where they bring in the experts from the institution and that all the different people from one institution teach the class and so i thought to myself how would i want to learn nutrition if i was a physician well i want to learn nutrition from the experts in the world so I said, why don't we start a fellowship and I'm going to pick all the people I would like to hear talk about a particular topic from anywhere in the world, dietitians, physicians, whoever they may be. And we can do that online and we can reach anyone. We can reach physicians all over the world. We can reach dietitians. We can reach pharmacists. Um and and we can do it online in a way, and then we can have a Zoom interaction like this, which we learned about in the pandemic, like you know, you and I are talking right now where they can actually get to know these experts and they can get to know each other and you can hear them talk. And so we started this Clinical Nutrition Fellowship, the Duke Online Clinical Nutrition Fellowship um, for the first uh, full round last year, we started in January. Um, and we have thir- we hope to get five physicians, this was our goal. We got 13 physicians from seven countries and four continents. And so we were really excited. We can only take, we only allow 20 to 22 people per module anyway, um, because we want to create an intimacy and a real interaction. And so we've been really thrilled and we have people from all over the globe teaching it, we have dietitians teaching it, we have physicians teaching it. Virtually every continent represented in our in our professors that are leading it and our dietitians that are leading it. And it has been such a joy. I participate in a lot of the Zoom sessions, whether it's my set of lectures or not. Um, and just to hear the, the experience and practice of people say in Chile or in Mexico or in Indonesia or in Australia is really unique, right? The, the diet, the, the, the nutrition challenges faced by people in different parts of the world are so different than what we worry about every day. And there's so much we can learn from them and what they do with much more limited resources. And so I think we've really tried to focus it on physicians in developing nations. And it's been a joy and, and we just got funded again for next year. And, and so we're, we're looking forward to next year and and um, this becoming a, 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 a cornerstone of, of how physicians should be trained in nutrition. And so we're just been thrilled um, by how it's going. And so it's been one of the most satisfying parts of my job for me is leading this effort.
0: That's awesome. And I'm sure there it sounds like there's a lot of people benefiting from that. And, so, you know, especially as we move out of the pandemic or, you know, move into this next phase, we have all these different options and resources and things that we really never tried you know, beyond going to an in-person conference once a year, right? There's so many other options now that are available. So very cool.
1: So true. And I encourage anyone listening, if, if you guys see them, want to join, or I encourage you to go to our website, our Duke online clinical nutrition website and, and look at the modules. We still have some open spots for some of the modules this year, like coming in a few weeks, Kelly Tappenden, the former editor in chief of JPN, now the Dean at university of Utah health sciences center Kelly Tappan, a well-known dietitian, is going to be teaching how to read the nutrition literature and how to evaluate literature. I mean, of course, I've heard her give this lecture at Aspen. Um, This is a phenomenal opportunity to have one of the true legendary dietitians and PhD researchers in the world teach you how to think about the nutrition literature. So um, I hope all the spots fill because it's a rare opportunity to have someone like her be interacting so personally with people. She's amazing. So anyway, just one of the neat modules that's coming up.
0: I want to switch gears for just a minute and talk a little bit about your research. What is the latest research telling us about the microbiome? I did some kind of crowdsourcing before this podcast and asked, what would people like to know from you? And that came up was, what do we need to know about the microbiome? And then how can we use that in our bedside clinical practice?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the microbiome has sort of been this explosive new analytic Ability to understand where before we could culture maybe five percent of the organisms in our body, now we can culture virtually a hundred percent of them. It's not even culture, right? We're we're sequencing them. It's it's an omic technology, right? You know, microbiomics is really an omic technology, like metabolomics or others, and so it's opened up this whole other world that we didn't even know really existed um, on on how really we as humans are are more bacterial than we are even human. You know, people think our cells make us human, but more than half the cells that live in our body are microbial. And then people say, well, our genetics make us human, but 99% of the genetic material in our body is actually microbial. And so, you know, people always say, you know, why do I get bit by mosquitoes in in the woods when I go hiking and my husband or wife doesn't? And it's not because they're sweeter. It's because their microbiome is different. And that's ultimately what it is. And, And in fact, even... our our mates and partners in life, whether marriage or sexual, otherwise, actually may be determined by our gut. We're finding out it's true in fruit flies for sure. Their gut microbiome is what chooses their partners and maybe we'll find out it's true in humans too. So there's dramatic effects of what our microbiome does. And of course, we know that if you take the microbiome of an obese person and you transfer it into a germ-free, no bacteria mouse, they get obese and they actually eat more. And so our microbiome, more than our genetics, changes who we are physically, uh, medically, health-wise. We know that kids born by C-section have a much higher rate of asthma and autoimmune diseases because they acquire mom's skin bacteria rather than mom's vaginal bacteria, which is how we're supposed to evolve our immune system. And so Rob Knight, who's one of my partners in the microbiome and a legend in the field, when his child was born by C-section, he took the vaginal secretions from his wife and rubbed them all over the baby. And most of the time, that's the only thing people remember when I talk about the microbiome is that story. But but, it, but we know it makes a difference in who people evolve to be and getting exposed to antibiotics early in life. Now we can see big changes in the microbiome that lead to greater risks of obesity and asthma and autoimmunity and other diseases. So we've learned about associations. And, and I think that's to some degree what the next step needs to be. So we know a lot about the makeup of the microbiome in different illnesses and at different ages. We know how it changes in humans as they evolve. We know what antibiotics do to it. Um, I can tell you what a critical care stay does to your microbiome, Um, but the real next step needs to be, what are we gonna do with all that information? And I think that's the question you're asking, right? Is how does this change what I do every day at the bedside? And that's really the part that we're only now beginning to think about and get to, right? Um, I proposed with a number of other critical care researchers a trial of of lactobacillus probiotic for critical illness to the NIH a few years back. And they said, we can't believe that one probiotic is going to make all critically ill patients better. And they're probably right. And so they said, go to the microbiome and figure out what's missing or or what's changed. And then come back to us with targets that perhaps uh, we could imagine a sort of designer stool pill or designer probiotic intervention, or maybe it's a fecal transplant we need to do. And so I think we've begun to identify targets um and i think that has really helped us begin to think about how to do treatment but i think we're just starting to scratch the surface of what we're going to do with all this understanding we have now of how fundamental the microbial makeup of our bodies are um and so i think one of those key studies clinically that i think really represents that is um there was a study in nature a few uh years ago that looked at a probiotic, a lactobacillus probiotic um, in full-term infants in India. And they studied thousands of them looking at respiratory illnesses, sepsis, and death. And they targeted that particular probiotic because they were able to analyze different probiotic strains using microbiome techniques and other bacterial techniques, which are the ones that got through to the colon and stayed there and persisted and grew. So if you're going to give someone a probiotic, you want to know it's going to grow quickly and, and, and become the commensal we want it to be to keep dysbiosis or bad bacterial makeup or loss of diversity at bay. And so they figured that out, and that's how they chose that probiotic. And ultimately, it led to significant reductions in death, respiratory illness, and sepsis in these full-term healthy infants. Um, so significant, it got five pages in Nature, one of the highest impact factor journals in the world. Um, and it led to as much as 50 and 60 and 70% reductions in respiratory infections. And so it's the most important study done in probiotics in in the world today. And it's really set the standard, but, but some of, I know the author of the study and, and getting to know him, he, he picked that based on some of these new techniques that we're able to do. And I think that's one of the futures we're going to start targeting fecal microbiotransplants, designer stool pills, and other probiotic interventions based on what we know is missing and knowing what they do metabolically, right? We use metabolomics in the fecal microbiome analysis as well because uh, microbes do different things in different people. And so I think we have a greater understanding of what's out there. Now we have to use that data to take the next step to how do we treat patients and make them better? And so I think that's just beginning. And I think that's sort of the takeaway is that next step in the next 20 years, the people I'm training now, I'm training this phenomenal young microbiome scientist from John Hopkins. Uh, Mars Runescu, who's who's that's her future. She's going to be able to analyze her own microbiome data and take it to the next step. And so uh, it's exciting to train. People who are going to do things I'll never, ever be able to do. And I think those are the people that will make the, the next generation that really change things.
0: Reflecting back on all of the research that you've conducted throughout your career, what would you say was the most exciting or the most surprising result when it was all said and done?
1: So... For better or for worse, it probably was the redox trial that we did with Darren Highland. It was this trial of glutamine and antioxidants. And we, you know, all the meta-analysis data and we for all the world thought we were going to save a lot of lives with this high dose glutamine intervention and in all comer ICU patients a number of years back. And we designed this big trial with 30, 40 centers around the world. And you know, I think we were quite ambitious we 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 did a dosing small dosing trial like the oncologists do looking for toxicities of higher doses of glutamine antioxidants. and we didn't see it in eight patients per group but but again, nutrients aren't drugs, they're nutrients, and they have a lot of interactions and and they're they're more subtle, right and their effects initially. and so I, I think what we didn't realize was, and we're still we're unraveling it now, and I think the new effort protein trial highlights this is Patients who have renal failure um, that get high doses of protein or get large amounts of single amino acids um, appear to have higher mortality and appear to have toxicity from it that we don't understand. Um, And we saw a trend or we saw signals of increased mortality almost entirely in the renal failure group that weren't getting dialysis, right? A large number of patients come into the ICU with renal failure that you know, we hope we'll get better. We don't always dialyze them right away. I think we thought when we designed the trial that everyone was getting CRT and we know that wastes amino acids and stuff. So, um but that isn't, that isn't necessarily what happens. We wait to see if renal function recovers. And in that trial, I think, I remember when Darren hyland and I got the results and, and we thought the groups were reversed because there was this signal of, of increased mortality in the glutamine group. And, I think when we looked at the data more closely, we saw, gosh, it's almost entirely in the renal failure group that didn't get dialysis. If we would have kept those patients out, which the package insert said we shouldn't be giving it to, by the way, we didn't think it would be a big issue, but um, the trial would have been positive. It would have reduced mortality, but that isn't how we did it. And so it was surprising. It was saddening and it was eye-opening, you know, and unfortunately, I think one of the things that did that I think all is a good lesson for all of us is I think All the data that showed the routine use of glutamine, say in TPN, that's been so beneficial consistently through the literature, um, that began to go away because of this other trial that we gave glutamine as a drug um, in patients who probably now we know shouldn't be getting it. Um, And we saw these untoward effects we didn't want. And and so I think it it was a lesson in as much as one trial can change an entire field, even the data that's not covered by that trial. It just can affect how we will perceive that whole nutrient in this case as a whole um, rather than just its use in this very niche of a setting that that it probably shouldn't have had so much effect on the rest of the practice of how say glutamine or antioxidants were used. But that was surprising. We were shocked. I'll never, I'll never forget the day. I mean, it, we had almost tears in our eyes when we presented it the first time because we really thought we were going to do so much good. And had we picked the patients correctly, we probably would have, and then we'd be telling a different story right now. And and so I think it's really educational for patients, for people designing trials about thinking about exclusion criteria and how you pick people. And so that was a shock um, and and one of the more memorable and and one of the bigger lessons I've learned in my career.
0: Looking ahead, can you give us a sneak peek of some research that you have in the works or maybe a new project that'll be coming out soon?
1: Yeah, we're doing a couple of things that we're really excited about. We've gotten two large um, grants, one from the NIH and one from the Department of Defense, to to do two things we're we, we're pretty excited about. The first um, is actually an exercise trial. You know, I, I think exercise nutrition go hand in hand, as people say. Um, I worked with a oncologist named Tony Sung here at Duke, and he and and a group of exercise physiologists that work with myself and 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 himself designed an exercise program where we use CPET testing, which is the kind of mask-based testing that elite athletes and Olympic athletes do to determine where their best heart rate to exercise is at. And So we've taken that to where we're using that in COVID survivors and ICU survivors, and we're targeting high-intensity interval training to the abilities and the heart rate targets of each individual patient based on their ability to do the same testing that an athlete does, only of course at much lower intensities. And so we're able to target their interval training to their ability where they're at and progress them. And then we use the iWatch, the Apple Watches, and they go home and do intervals three times a week. And twice a week, they interact with an iPhone. We give them with a physical therapist who can see their real-time heart rate intervals and coach them on how to do them better. And so we've been able to personalize the kind of exercise training an Olympic athlete does or a professional athlete does for patients who are recovering from COVID in the ICU Um, and make it able to be done at home. And so we have a trial we're doing with Vanderbilt, Ohio State and University of Alabama, Birmingham. It's a lot of those places that really good exercise folks and and ICU folks. Um, And so we're doing this big randomized trial, the NIH funded about $4 million over a number of years to to look at how we can help COVID patients recover and and ultimately ICU patients recover as well. And, And then we hope to be able to use it to optimize people before surgeries. That's the next grant I'm gonna write is how do we do this before surgery, and combine it with nutrition? And then specific to nutrition, the other thing we're really excited about, obviously, is many of you probably know, we have this new generation of metabolic carts that um, the ESPEN European Nutrition Foundation or Society, gave a grant to a group of Europeans that brought some of us from America and Asia in on to design a more user friendly and more accurate metabolic cart. Um, and so ESPEN and industry and a group of us validated and designed it and and um, we're really excited about it. And so we have now begun to do truly personalized nutrition interventions. And one of the pathways we're studying that the Department of Defense studied was we're gonna study abdominal trauma with the idea that we can start early PN in these trauma patients um, with the goal of helping them recover function. So our endpoint is a six minute walk test at hospital discharge. We start peeing early um, using metabolic cart data, and we use the metabolic cart throughout their whole stay all the way to the floor. And we guide their enteral and oral nutrition with the metabolic cart. And then we send them home with supplements and dietitian coaching for the first month that they're out. And so we call it Home is the name of the the study. And it's a personalized nutrition pathway that starts basically within two days of admission and uses metabolic cart to guide their care, personalize their care all the way past discharge. And so Ironically, as some people may know, I ended up needing a large operation last year, um, about a year ago this month, a year ago in actually April. Um, And unfortunately, 13 hours after, you know, I had a 13-hour surgery and was doing okay for the first two days, but then my my incision started to pour stool and I I had a leak. And I ended up having two more emergent surgeries and having an uncontrolled fistula. And so this is the sickest I've ever been in my life. I was in my own ICU being cared for by my own nurses and my own residents. It was quite an experience. Um, but we started doing metabolic carts before and after that surgery. And of course, I was on TPN for months. Um, and at home, too, I was on TPN. But we guided it this time, unlike all my other hospitalizations, with this metabolic cart. And we realized I needed 4,000 calories a day. My resting energy expenditure was 3000. I was active rehabbing and whatever physical therapy I could do. And we used my eye watch to figure out how many calories I was burning. And we figured I needed about 900 to a thousand more. We'd never write TPN for 4,000 calories for anyone without data like that. But when I was hospitalized in the other 14, it was much less sick after my surgeries. I lost 50 pounds and it took me two years to recover my physical function. I lost five pounds being much sicker than I'd ever been. Septic, peritonitis, edema up to my waist. Was gained it all back in the first month on TPN and was dancing, lifting my wife over my head eight weeks later. Um, was just as strong. Um, it was miraculous. I had always taught you couldn't have a major surgery or be critically ill without losing muscle, without losing weight, and without losing strength. I didn't. And it's because we had our dietitians and our team had this precision, this personalized nutrition information to meet my needs. And of course, I it, it, early exercise and physical therapy is critical. I stay out of the bed, right? Beds are evil and they they only cause illness. They're only made for sleeping. And I tell my patients that I don't want you in the bed except for at night. And I stayed out of bed all day and walked a lot. And and I think that's really key for our patients too. But I I, I can now say you don't have to lose muscle. You don't have to ICU acquired weakness. You don't have to lose strength um, if we do this right. And if we use our tools and techniques to personalize nutrition. And so I think those two trials were really excited about because I personally had it changed and maybe saved my life. And now I'm getting to study it, you know, in, in people undergoing abdominal trauma. And the idea is we can use these metabolic carts in the field for soldiers. We can start peeing in the field with pre bags. All this is now accessible in any country in the world, even in a Ford military setting. And so I think we're really excited that finally nutrition now can become objective and personalized in a way it never could before. And I lived it and it changed my life.
0: I think your story is incredible. The work you're doing is just so phenomenal. And I'll just say thank you for everything that you've done and everything that's coming out in the future. You know, I think as dietitians and other healthcare professionals alike, um, we have a lot of great things to look forward to. So thank you for everything that you're doing to support our practice.
1: Yeah, of course. No, I, I think... And, and that's the key message, right? The dietitian, I think, I think all, all the dietitians feel empowered now. That at Duke, our dietitians are going to run our metabolic cart team, right? I mean, the dietitians can do all these things and be leading all these endeavors, and that's really been the goal because there's no one else that's going to do it. And I and I hope that you know dietitians continue to feel empowered that they really are the, the leaders of this field and and save lives every day. And I think they need to be continue to be empowered to speak up and know the literature and and feel like They're the, they're the ones defending the patient from the lack of knowledge of everyone else. I mean, they, they are really the leaders. And I think all the dietitians should realize that, you know, I wouldn't be here without you guys. And many of our patients wouldn't either. And and I, and I really hope that continues to lead dietitians everywhere to speak up, know literature, be the leaders that you are, because you're the only ones that are going to be able to do it.
0: Do you have any other words of advice for our listeners before we wrap up today?
1: I would encourage all of them to follow on Instagram and Twitter because I try to share a lot of nutrition and dietitian related literature and and other things that I hope can help help people feel more empowered to know the literature and the data.
0: With that, we'll go ahead and conclude this episode. Thank you again so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um,
0: And listeners, be sure that you check out our website at dnsdpg.org. We've got a ton of really great nutrition support resources available at your fingertips. So check it out. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.